As a journalist who has covered the finance sector over the last five years, I've had the opportunity to interview and engage with some of the best minds in the space. Leaving big bank earnings reports to the boring traditional media firms, I'll focus on the tech-savvy apps, digital investing platforms, challenger banks, and payment giants to drive relevant content that looks forward to disruption instead of fearing it. I'm Nicole Kasperson, fintech journalist, and this is What the Fintech. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of What the Fintech, a podcast for fintech professionals who want to shape the future of our industry with innovation and inclusion. I'm your host, Nicole Kasperson, and today I'm sitting down with a true pioneer in fintech investing. With us is Amy Naokis, the founder and CEO of Anthemus Group. She's also the founder and CEO of Archer Gray, a media production company. Amy is committed to investing in diverse founders, especially women and women of color. In fact, she's also the CEO and chair of Anthemus Digital Acquisitions, a 100% female-led and ESG-focused special purpose acquisition company. I could spend all day sharing her ridiculously impressive street cred, so just trust me when I say Amy is the real deal. Amy, welcome to What the Fintech. Oh, thank you so much for having me. That was such a nice intro. I appreciate it. Oh, you are welcome. And thank you so much for joining. So happy to have you a part of the show and my guest list in this community. Um, to start, where are you located right now? Where are you working from? You're working from home with this beautiful cherry blossom. I, I am actually, we are back at our office in um, lower Manhattan, um, our New York office. And um, yeah, it's a very quiet day today. We have, a, um, we've gone back to work remote first, so it, there's no requirement to be here and, and people kind of wander in and out um, as time goes on. And so I'm sitting here very quiet and alone in, in our New York office today. <laughs> well, that's kind of nice. It's uh, nice to have those days, right? Because then you can kind of feel like you actually get like work done when you aren't shuffling around in meetings all the time and having that quiet. I Sometimes I'll just wake up earlier just to have that a little bit. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, and I don't know that this is true of, of all moms, but I think for me, one of the unbelievably challenging, but yet um, interesting kind of moment of self-awareness for me over the the sort of work from home last couple of years was that that I, I think I'm probably slightly different on intensity levels as a mom than I am as a, a sort of, you know, CEO of multiple companies and <laughs> probably not as, as di- you know, maybe not as far removed as, as my own reality, but like, I, you know, you're, you're standing 15 to 20 feet from my daughter and I'm, you know, talking about, we're going to do this and we're going to do this and who's, this is great. And we should try this and let's do this. And then I walk out, I'm like, Hey, do you want to go make a diorama with mommy? And she's like, absolutely not. Like there's like, clearly <laughs> it is not a person you want to go and play in the craft room with. Right. And so I, I think I started to realize that coming back to work to some degree, because I have the privilege to do so allows me to kind of like wipe work off of me when I walk back in the house at night. And, and that's yeah. been good for our family. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's totally just depends on who you are and how, you know, your preferences and how you feel. Because I always felt the same way before the pandemic. I was like majorly into being in the office and being in a newsroom and having, um, you know, that energy. And I would stay late at work because the minute I got home, like that was it. I like took off my skin, my work skin. And I was my like, I was Nicole, the human who binge watches whatever on Netflix and like, 
yeah, eats my dinner on the couch or whatever. Shut I'll it do. down. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, I, I do hope, and and I actually, you know, we we talk about this all the time at Anthemus. Um, one of our our core values is um bring your weird, um, which is you know kind of a a goal of ours that that um you know you don't have to be any different at work than you would be anywhere else in your life because weird is accepted here and it's welcome here. Um, but I do think you know we're getting better generally at appreciating the value of having and, and bringing our unique selves to our workplace and, and creating environments where people can bring their unique selves to, but it's still not quite there yet. You know, and I think particularly right. work in financial services around a lot of, you know, very certain types of personalities, sometimes you do have to put a bit of a guard on. Um, and that can be really exhausting. Um, certainly after 30 plus years of doing it, it can be extremely exhausting. Um, but I'm, I'm hopeful that we're going to, you know, we're, that we're going to be seeing a lot more of, um, again, you said, as, as you introduced me, but that authenticity um, in, 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 you know, how we spend our time and, and our days. Um, it's important that we do it authentically. Um, and, and hopefully those, those, uh, shields and those skins and those guards will come down. Right. I'm just learning how to let my guard come down through this podcast, through my newsletter, through putting my own, you know, name and face out there that isn't just behind, um, you know, a corporate, uh, legacy publication brand. So, um, and hoping people uh, appreciate my voice in, in that manner. And luckily the, and the, uh, the response has been great. And, you know, I've have women and amazing people like myself on the show. So that is awesome. Um, but speaking of kind of getting into a little bit of your background and your personal story, because I do believe that is so critical to your success as a leader. I'm so curious if during your upbringing, there was a moment or a series of moments that really fueled this passion of yours for uplifting diverse voices. Yeah. You know, I think about this all the time um, in large part as I, I talk uh, to my own children and, 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 and the discussion we have in our family, um, you know, we're, we're a family um, of, of six children um, who share multiple different personality traits, but also share different cultures and, and, and different races um, and, and certainly different nationalities. Um, and so the conversation of diversity is, is kind of front and center all the time in our family. And I didn't grow up like that. Um, I, I grew up in a very, um, you know, small town in Connecticut, kind of the part of Connecticut that, that most people don't appreciate exists, right? Not the kind of West ports of the world, but, but kind of in the, you know, that line between industrial and um, farmland Connecticut. And um, we did not, you know, have um, in our community, a particularly diverse community of people. Um, and, and certainly it wasn't something that I saw um, on a regular basis, uh, you know, in, in my kind of day-to-day -day life, but the idea that, you know, people could look different than me because they didn't. And I, and I just, I remember, and this is going to seem probably, oh, I'm, sure, I'm sure I'm dating myself. I can remember watching television, you know, one night when I was either supposed to be doing homework or probably was doing homework in front of the television. And um, I think because both my parents worked, there wasn't a lot of, you know, there was a, probably a lot of television I was watching that I probably shouldn't have been watching um, in the 70s and 80s growing up. Um, and I can remember watching news, a news feed about the um, Central Park Five. And I probably was, um, gosh, maybe 15 14, 15, sometime, somewhere around there. And um, just watching the news clip and it was, you know, Channel 5 News, New York, outside, we were getting the New York news feed and they were telling the story about these 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 animals really is how they were describing it on the newscast um, and they were my age. And I just, I it something clicked with me and I went, 
you know, I sort of just asked, like, it just didn't make sense that, that kids my age could do what they were being described as doing. Um, and somehow that to me was like a, an aha moment of sorts where I thought, what, what, you know, why is this happening? Is this real? And, and I somehow probably well before um, the world figured out, questioned it and, and questioned it in a way that was incredibly honest and very um, raw because I was still quite young and I didn't have any of the tools. And, and that to me felt like a moment where my eyes opened um, uh, and, and it just kind of led me down a very strange path of, of learning more about the black American experience um, in a way that, that, you know, my, 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 my outlet was reading because that's what I had. Um, and I, and I started to sort of search out things here and there and, and found myself um, learning more about completely um, oddly going from the black American experience and, and jumping right back to um, the, the, the African experience um, and, and becoming very uniquely obsessed with African history and culture and um, just everything that was, you know, of the mind. And I ask my kids all the time, you know, when you're younger and you're growing up, you know, is there one thing that whenever you would see it in a newspaper, you'd have to read the article or you see a book in the bookstore and you have to read it. And for me, from the age of 15 onward, um, it was anything having to do with the continent of Africa. And, and, and I, and I actually do think it had a lot to do with not understanding um, the journey um, that I was being presented by the news media um, at that moment um, when the Central Park Five was being persecuted. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I mean, that is it's really interesting and just telling that, you know, at a young age, at a very like formidable age, you um someone that maybe wasn't as connected, right? Someone that wasn't exposed to this level of diversity could see something on the news and be like, oh, that's just wrong. Like, and it hurts and it like kind of hits you and it hits different, right? And I think when you don't go grow up around diversity, you either, you know, um, find yourself way more comfortable just ignoring um, ignoring it or ignoring that you're, you know, not surrounded by anyone different and just going along the ride or lost in the sauce, if you will. Um, or you are someone like yourself who says, this is wrong and I'm going to like learn and read books and research about what the F is going on here because this is like a crazy thing and it should not be happening. You know, I can resonate with that because I went to a high school I'm originally from California, and then I moved to Texas when um, I was a teen, went to high school there and college. And, you know, I went from having a large Asian community, Asian American community in California and um, Orange County with me to just going to a, a high school that's like 98% white. So I became this like odd person out. I became like this um, exotic being and I'd never really experienced that and that happened to me around the same age right like around 13 14 15 and I was like confused and you get all those like weird antsy like feelings and you don't understand what's going on and then um but it it's what made me who I am today right it's what fueled my intense pride for you know being a half Filipino woman for what makes me different and all that good stuff so like it's interesting the way those like moments really like stick with you and, um, you know, help us become the wonderful people we are today, despite them being such, you know, horrific circumstances, you know, it's crazy. And to appreciate, you know, kind of, you know, early on, because I grew up in a, 
in a family um, that from a socioeconomic perspective was not well off. Um, you know, I was first generation college student. Um, my, my parents were first generation immigrants. There was not a, um, a you know, a, a mechanism by which to me, it was about like the, the, the race question felt like it would have been really easy and simple to say, oh, well, it's about being poor and not poor. And then that's the answer. Um, but it was so clearly obvious to me as I started to dig in that it had nothing to, not that it didn't have anything to do with economics, because it all has to do with economics, but but that there was something much bigger um, mm-hmm. in, in that, in the, in the challenges that I faced as a, as a, as a younger person who lived in white skin and had the privilege of living in white skin um, versus anybody around me that didn't. And it was, yeah. And it was the fuel that, that just wanted me to, you know, I guess drove me to learn more. And, um, but it can be, you know, it's very similarly. I, I, and I don't think that this was, I know this isn't the reason why I did it. Um, I really was doing it because I was more, I just wanted to go deeper and deeper. And when I got to college, um, I studied um, African studies as part of my international um, studies major and and um I had an opportunity to go abroad and and so I went abroad to and lived for a year in western Africa and Cameroon and that experience in the early 90s um which would be very different today given how much more global the world is um talk about being fish out of water right like showing up in a country as a 19 year old white girl from central Connecticut and um literally being looked at and ogled for my difference, um, mm-hmm. which I had never experienced before. And it was so incredibly eye-opening and so wonderfully perspective building um, that I think it, it absolutely fueled, um, you know, my, my life's goals of, of trying to um, fight for a more fair and, and equitable society because um, that felt crappy. <laughs> like it felt yeah. really crappy. Right? And, right. um, and, and, but I understood it. Right. And, and I learned so much from it and, and the relationships that I built there and the, and the people that I met and the experience I had, um, was so incredibly life affirming, uh, and, and certainly have, has driven almost everything that I've, that I've done professionally. Oh, and your background is wildly impressive from being one of the most powerful and influential women in finance leadership to also working on Oscar and Golden Globe nominated films to amplify those stories of those traditionally ignored between the media and finance slash VC industries, which has been a harder area area to uplift women and people of color and why? Oh, it's a great question. Um, you know, I think when I... I started my career in a very traditional Wall Street manner. I started as a baby banker. I went and got my MBA. I did all the things um, to give myself the pedigree that 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 one gets to be able to do the things they want to do on Wall Street. And I, um, you know, for sure, noticed the the level of um, the lack of of inclusivity um, in in kind of the Wall Street sense. Um, growing up in the on the street in the '90s and, and early '90s. But it wasn't until I was a little bit more senior that I actually felt it was my job to do something about it. And and not that I wasn't conscious of it, but I think like everyone right. growing up in that space, you put your head down and you did your job because there was only going to be one of you elevated and um, yeah. you weren't sure which one it was going to be. And it was probably not going to be the squeaky one, right? Because that wasn't encouraged. Um, and I think I was I was um, lucky enough or, or I guess well, you could say I think I was 
a, bit, bought a lot of it was luck, but I put myself in a position very early on that I, I, I got very senior very fast. So by the time I was 34, I was um, running uh, one of the, the, the largest retail brokerage shops in Europe. And I was in sitting in London, and and I think it was um, at that moment where I started to you know take coffees with with people on my team, and um, you know do events and small dinners, and I started to realize how little mentorship and um, example there was of somebody like me in the community, and how important that was to that community that I actually did more work on that right. And I think a lot of times, as women, even today, like there are a lot of folks that will not want to be called out for being a woman leader um, or being mm-hmm. a, you know, a woman venture capitalist, because quite frankly, I'm a leader and I'm a venture capitalist and that it doesn't really matter what my gender is. Right. Um, but I, I think there was this turning point for me at age 34 where I thought, God, if I don't do this from my position, then there will be no impact had and there'll be no purpose. And everybody after me is not going to have it easier. And I had it really hard because nobody before me leaned back to help me out. And, and so for me, that was that moment of, of lift around, you know, wanting to, to, to lean in and give, give back to the community and and to just be a voice um, as much as I possibly could. And so I think once I made that decision, I was pleasantly surprised at how incredibly um, welcome it was with a certain community within wall street. Um, But also it was the, mechanism by which I could make a decision to say, I'm not staying here and doing it this way. Like if I'm going to make real change, I need to do it myself. And so my decision to, to, to drop out of the corporate game, to go build my own thing so that I could see that, you know, be the change I wanted to see was in large part because some of the struggle I had being kind of the one and the only um, at that moment. Um, but, and this is sort of getting back to your question about which one's different and easy, easier. I think in some strange way, when I made the move to start Anthemus and then simultaneously started Archer Gray, which in itself was a crazy thing to do, but I kind of thought one of them wouldn't work. And, you know, here we are. Um, the, the, the kind of difference in the media space was that there was a perception that women had power and a perception that women's voices were heard and a perception that if they're women in movies, then they must be part of the community. And it, it was a lot more difficult, I think, to make the change in the media space um, than it was in financial services in some ways, because in financial services, the expectation was that there were no women. <laughs> that women. So, so it almost was like you could have the conversation where when you move into the media space, and this was, you know, late 2009, it wasn't, you know, we're not talking the 80s. Um, there were still very few people buying films that looked different than you know, a typical white man, like, and, and that makes a difference, right? And and we all know that's how it works. Like diversity happens when you diversify the networks and the people that you're around. But if the same people keep doing the same things over and over again, you do not get a different result. Um, And so I, it was really, when I entered the media space, it was not with an, with a distinct um, inclination to only make films that mattered and that elevated voices. Um, but I got there pretty quickly because I was like, well, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to, you know, join in and do anything but this. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I will say is that I am so happy that I'm also doing what I'm doing because apparently that is the right strategy um, given your story, right? Um, so thank you. I feel so validated right now um, for branching out and realizing, right? Like if you want to be the change that you wish to see in the world, you do have to go and do it yourself. And like, honestly, sometimes you can't just like change uh, a legacy publication or you can't change like a legacy maybe you know, media company or whatever it is, you have to go out and build it yourself and then have everyone listen to you from that point of view. And it actually is interesting how much respect you get um, for something like that. And I feel really fortunate to, um, you know, if someone like yourself um, hadn't taken the steps you took, I wouldn't have a pathway to follow, you know, and that's exactly what you've done. And I, I wouldn't have this like, um, confidence, right, if you will, or hearing your story, right? And I hope that all of not just the women, but anyone, right, that has felt like they didn't have a path for them listens to this and knows that, you know, you can and you and there's it's possible. And, um, you know, the, the challenges we face are across all industries, right? It hits financial services really hard. And um, it is interesting to think about how, like, because in finance, there's already, like, Eh, it's men like and that's clear and then you go over to like the the movie or um you know entertainment media and think um oh well women are given so much platform but what kind of platform is that right is it the like um but what do we do now as the woman looks to the man and like asks for help or like is the damsel in distress or there's like all of these things that um you know the um media has perpetuated of, of women and who they are so uh, yeah, I mean, it, that is such a I, I'm so glad I asked that question because it's um, so interesting to think about. And, and it oddly makes, I think, us in like finance and fintech not feel so almost alone. Right. Because there's all it's across all industries, but it also amplifies the issue and and amplifies how we have to um, right build that foundation of change so that other industries can you know, tap in as well, because we're all connected. Yeah, I think if, if we've learned anything in the last couple of years, um, which I think some of us have, um, some of us are still working on it. Um, I think what we've realized is that, you know, systems change is hard. We're not talking about kind of one-off examples and one-off solutions. We're talking about dismantling a system that was not built for or by most of us ever, right? And um, I think the beauty of the work that that we get to do at Anthem is in early stage investing, um, which is a big part of our our platform. You know, I always say, look, the fact that insert any bank here is still not quite getting diversity right um, after you know being built for and by white men a couple hundred years ago isn't super shocking. But if we build new companies inside of fintech and we don't do it right, then that's on us because there's way too many great ideas and way too many unbelievably talented white uh, women, you know, people of color, um, people with different, you know, uh, backgrounds and, 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 and um, cognitive differences out there um, that are willing to put the hard work into building really great new models and companies it just might mean we have to look a little harder to find them. And and I, I get so frustrated by how many people talk about the pipeline problem, uh, right? It's sort of uh, like- Painful. Yeah, it's a pipeline problem. It's like, I'm pretty sure it's not a pipeline problem, right? I mean, I'm sitting 
on top of a beautiful platform that just by nature of hiring a team that is diverse has managed to deploy 40% of our capital into companies that are either backed by women or people of color in fintech. So if, if there's a pipeline problem, my friend, like I'd be seeing it. And, and you want to just have a look a little harder. Um, or more importantly, don't look harder, just look a little smarter, right? Because um, if you open your eyes, you're going to find that, that, that um, there's no pipeline problem. Right. Uh, no, I, I, the pipeline problem is uh, chatter is a bit frustrating. Um, there are plenty of women and women of color and diverse founders in fintech. Clearly, right. You have them a part of your platform. And um, so, yeah, it, it's crazy. You're like looking at a speaker faculty and it being like all men or, you know, all white people. When I've seen speaker faculties of like full women and full di- like diverse people, like it's possible. And from my point of view, I've just you had to be intentional about that inclusion. Like I've you know, and I've tried to tell in my past roles, like other journalists, this, they're like, well, how do I get like more diverse sources? And I'm like, you literally ask, like, tell the PR person, I want a woman to talk about this. Or, you know, if I reach out to someone who is like a big name in the industry, um, you know, I, I really applaud like a male CEO or a male founder who will say, you know, what, I could talk about this, but really, you know, sponsors a, a female colleague that maybe is their COO or CFO or whatever that could, I think they could tell the story better or like, you know, give like that kind of um, platform sharing, if you will, or whatever it is, right? Like we need the sponsorship. We need the, the allyship. We need every single person on board, like male, female, whatever, like no matter what um, you identify as, everyone needs to be on board here and you have to be so intentional about, about it. And like, that's what I did. Even just like the current guest list I have on this podcast. It's you were rocking, by the way. Your guest list is like <laughs> loving. I feel so privileged to be part oh, of it. Thank that. you. Oh my gosh, are you you're like yours. Yes, thank you, thank you. Oh my gosh, I feel so privileged to have you and all of the guests, which is great. And that's I think it's like we're creating a little anthemous portfolio company club on, on your podcast. I know, and I didn't even know it. It just so happens that right, it made it only made sense right because I'm intentionally looking like I chose the first person that I am airing with on purpose, like very intentionally. And my list of guests, like I am right now at like 60% women interviews, uh, 40% male. All of my, um, the only, all of my interviews are people of color except for two and two, both of them are women and they're Levy, like, and you guys are amazing. Like, that's what I'm, and of course, well, and that's, I'm, that's how it happens too, right? Like, it's you know, it's 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 not a, it's not accidental that we can, you know, that that we define what representation looks like in any particular industry, right? So, you know, we have this really unique opportunity as as fintech leaders. Uh, you know, many of us ended up in fintech because there wasn't really a place for us in the other part of fin, right? And and so by nature, there might be a lot more diverse talent sitting in the fintech community than in other parts of financial services. And so if that's the case, and if we continue to have the you know wind behind our sails of the industry and, and coming to age of sorts, um, we, we can be really intentional about the picture that we show of this industry because it doesn't all look like what crypto looks like, right? <laughs> and then we should remind people of that on a regular basis. So I applaud what you're doing because I think it's a, it's a great way to, 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 to kind of, again, be the change we want to, you know, we want to see. 
Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I do want to jump into uh, Anthemus and all of the great work you're doing. We already kind of spoiled a little bit of it with my guest list that is uh, fairly largely made up of some of your portfolio. Um, but will you give our listeners a quick overview of Anthemus um, and maybe even share the story of how you went from overlooked to on trend today? Hmm. Yeah. So my partner, Sean, and I um, found each other in the um, mid noughties. Um, we, we kind of have a, a, a laughing um, Seinfeld reference joke because he he referred to me when we first met as um, his Newman to his Seinfeld. And I'm not oh, sure why he got to be Seinfeld and I got to be Newman. But he he basically said that every time he was trying to do something um, at the bank that he was working at, um, I would just show up and do it just before he got to do it and he couldn't figure out why. And we finally met, um, he, you know, I laughed at him and I said, Sean, you've been blogging back in the day when blogs were a thing. Um, you've been blogging about this forever. And I think I might be the only person paying attention to what you're saying, but I'm just asking faster than you are. And, and there was this moment of like, oh, maybe there's something in us working together. And we bonded over, you know, our, our mutual frustration of, of in 2007, trying to convince the powers that be in large financial institutions that the world was changing, um, that digitization of the markets was going to matter, um, that now what's become fintech, um, you know, was a thing. And we agreed that that there was no reason to keep pushing that proverbial elephant up the hill and that we might be able to do this on our own. Um, and so we, we jumped off um, and we started uh, the company, Anthemis Group. Um, and we started it very deliberately as a holding company and an investment platform. Um, and our goal from the very beginning was to deploy um, – financial, but also human and intellectual capital in the service of um, transformation inside of financial services. And that financial services and transformation of the financial system was meant to include and was largely going to be driven by um, creating a more resilient, a more fair, and a more equitable system for for all who participated in it. And I, I, I do believe, as most things happen fairly serendipitously, that, um, you know, two things happen that, that kind of helped drive us and motivate us. The first was that we didn't know each other very well. Um, and so as such, when you start to like attach your, 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 your train cars to each other and realize that, you know, you have no clue what you've just done. You've both quit your jobs and you're about to start a company together and you barely even know the person's last name, um, that we, 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 we spent a considerable amount of time really talking about what was important to us from a values perspective and the alignment of our values from the very beginning, um, really served as the foundation of what we built with the Anthemus group. Um, you know, we knew we were doing something that was going to be a very long process. It wasn't going to happen overnight. Um, systems change does not happen in, you know, five, 10, 15 years. It happens in a hundred years. Um, and so we figured this was going to be, we're playing the long game here. Um, and that as such, our, our goal was to be much more collaborative with the industry than to be combative. Um, we knew that this would be an evolution, not a revolution. And that felt to us at the moment when a lot of people were talking about disruption um, to be the right way to, to play it. Um, it also helped us leverage our already existing relationships inside of a large ecosystem of financial services players and bring it to the valley, which to be fair, wasn't happening in 2008, right? People weren't talking between Wall Street and, and, um, and, and California to Um And then the second thing we we committed to um, in those early days was that we wanted to do significantly more good than evil um, in the work we were doing. And that would guide us away from things that felt and looked predatory, which in the early days of um, financial services technology 
was a lot of stuff. Um, and that that would be kind of our, you know, we'd have a very high bar, um, which now is being defined very clearly at a, as, as ESG. Um, but that for us, that sort of virtuous cycle outcome was incredibly important. And then finally, that we would build the team and deploy capital way more diversely, diverse, diversely and inclusively than anybody had done it before. Um, in financial services, in the industry generally, um, and then we just went off and, and went. And, and like I said, we started a, as a platform and as a holding co. Um, and we never intentionally intended to build an asset management company. Um, but I think what happened uh, for us, you know, was that we were so far ahead of the industry. We had a few years where we could do that. We could we could be a little bit more like, oh, we'll raise a little capital here. We'll take our own capital here. And we'll just invest in companies as they come along. But, you know, we were counting on two hands how many companies would be described as fintech, right? And so we seeded in the early days, Zoopla and Climate Corp, and we seeded um, uh, Seed Camp in Europe, which is the sort of European equivalent to Y Combinator. Um, and and then kind of as time went on, um, we seeded eToro and Betterment and um, Carta and Currency Cloud and kind of all these companies that are now coming alive, um, so to speak. Um, but we didn't have to go and raise capital through kind of a traditional LP model. Um, we were quite, you know, thoughtfully, um, we actually used to joke that one of the, 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 the names before we decided to call it Anthemis um, that I wanted to call the company was working capital because we, I just felt like we had to always prove ourselves. Right. And, and I think, you know, we can talk about this in a minute, but like coming full circle, that's really what's, you know, separating the winners from the losers right now is those people that are willing to do more than just write a check. Um, and we did that right from the very beginning. And it wasn't until about 2014, 15, when the world started to catch up on this thesis, um, that we really felt that we needed to be a bit more nimble around um, our ability to raise capital and deploy capital. And we built our um, kind of full platform uh, asset management business now. So so the, the business itself um, deploys capital, human, intellectual, uh, and financial um, in uh, companies as early as Venture Studio, where we support currently um, exclusively female founders. And um, and uh, then through to kind of early stage, which we go up to B. Uh, then we skip over all that other stuff, DEF, uh, which, you know, for all the right reasons. Um, and, and we launched our first SPAC this fall um, to work uh, in, the, in the public markets. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been an interesting journey. And it's kind of been amazing that in the last couple of years, we went from being the outsiders who were often referred to as the weirdos to being the insiders who are now authentically doing the things that everybody is trying to get credit for. Um, so that feels pretty good, but, but it does come with a, a significant amount of responsibility. <laughs> I think, um, I think we have a responsibility to keep the bar high. Um, we have a responsibility to, you know, showcase how the good guys do it. Um, and that's mm -hmm. sort of what we try to do every single day. Um, and, and I think our style and our reputation more in the last year than it probably has ever mattered um, as things have gotten more competitive. And I feel really proud of, of the team um, and generally kind of the work that we do, but, but also the way we do it, um, which is hugely different, I think, than the majority of, of folks that are deploying capital these days. Oh, yeah, amazing. And so I, it goes back to, you know, bring your weird uh, to work. I love that, you know, that is kind of a part of your mantra today because right you you've gone through this process of being the weirdo and then now being 
the trendsetter. Um, and it's like, well, it took whatever, however many like years or decades or whatever, but like here we are. And, um, but you know, be having that perseverance to never go against what you believe in, no matter what it meant, no matter what anyone said about you. I mean, that says a lot. And, um, I think, um, the, the Gen Zers today are like really good at it. But, you know, when you're um, old, like the, in the generations before, <laughs> we didn't necessarily always have, <laughs> we didn't always have, technically I'm a millennial, we didn't have the, um, you know, we didn't really have like uh, mentors or sponsors yeah. uh, for the most part that kind of told us, hey, like you don't need to fit the mold. Instead, like even us millennials, we didn't do a great job. Like Gen Z is really crushing it with the whole um, authenticity aspect because like millennials were trying to get there, but like still too scared to like uh, make some noise. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I appreciate kind of this like full blown like social media generation who um, isn't scared to to say what's up. And um, but you've been doing it well before that uh, any of this happened. And so uh, <laughs> kudos to you and that. I mean, we are approaching year end, which is kind of the perfect time to summarize how Anthemus has grown and developed in the past year and kind of reflect on all of that success. Um, so from either January to today or honestly, the whole way through, <laughs> what is the initiative moment, area of growth or whatever investment that maybe makes you the most proud and why? Is it the special purpose acquisition company deal or? Oh, gosh. You know, I, I don't know that I would pick one investment per se or one moment per se. And I, I guess that's kind of asking like a parent of multiple children to pick their favorite child, right? I, I can't <laughs> do that. Um, but it has been such a massive year for the industry, by far the largest that we've seen in terms of capital deployed. I, I think that the third quarter alone had somewhere north of 900 transactions in fintech. Um, and, and I think the players that have come in this year driving the flurry of activity um, have presented some challenges, right? Have really, you know, given the industry some pause um, that no doubt um, that, that, that these kind of big, you know, the tigers and the, the coaches and that sort of soft banks of the world coming in and kind of compressing some of the early stage investments. Um, I, I, I liken it to like dropping up a, a massive boulder into an already bubbling pot of water and then displacing, um, you know, kind of a lot of the VC players that were doing it before and have been doing it for a while and, and frankly, creating a lot of noise um, and anxiety amongst otherwise rational founders. Um, and so weaving through that um, has been a bit of a challenge. Um, but I think from an Anthemist perspective, I've, I've been overwhelmed and, and quite frankly, grateful at how, um, how well we've played inside of that vortex this year. Um, I think maybe we've lost one trade um, to the to the, the big dudes, so to speak. Um, and quite frankly, we've, we've won a few... Um, where our valuation hasn't been the highest. Um, and that's saying a lot about our brand, our, our reputation, again, our style. Um, and, and, you know, I think this year alone, we've done 70 investments um, since January. Uh, we've closed a couple funds. We launched our first SPAC. Um, you know, we've put money in the hands of probably the most diverse group of, of, of founders um, that are kind of existing today. And, and to me, you know, that is what I'm most proud of and what I'm most excited about, right? There's so much more opportunity to come for next year. And, and I think we're just getting started um, as a team and as an industry. Um, again, I, I talk about having responsibility to continue to lead, lead authentically into the new year um, as things sort of continue to, to, to be a little bit up and down, as I think we've seen with the markets recently, like 
it, they will be. But um, yeah, I just think, I guess the general feeling, you know, there's a little bit of tiredness across the board as, as yeah. you, you would, you would do when you're going into kind of going at war every day. Um, but, okay. but I think the team generally um, is feeling very proud of the work that we've done, the impact we've made. I mean, we are, you know, we've hit that magical mark of, of well over a billion under management um, across a whole host of, of different products and stages. And, and that's a pretty important moment for an asset manager. Um, and it, it makes me super excited about, you know, the, the dry powder we go into next year with. But again, it's not just about capital because there's so much money out there right now. Um, that the biggest threat, I think, to the to the to the equity capital markets and, and even the debt capital markets next year for founders isn't about accessing capital. It's about partnering with people that are actually going to help you spend that capital responsibly and mm-hmm. draw it out in a way that's going to allow you to build your business um in case the market trips up because, you know, it very likely will. Um, we've been on such a massive bull run um, for so long now in this sector. Um, I think we can expect that there are going to be some, some hiccups. Uh, and, and we want to make sure that, that our portfolio companies certainly are prepared for that journey, but that we're, you know, we're providing them not just with, with the check, but the, the work and the guidance um, and the support and the ecosystem connectivity that allows them uh, to, to, to manage through the ups and downs. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, just kudos to you and all of the success. Um, and I appreciate what you say, right? It's, um, you are doing the work like capital T H E as we say, um, you know, to, to really make that difference and put money into, um, you know, diverse founders hands and, and, um, you know, those, those stats are dismal, right? The, the 1% of global VC funding going to women or women of color founders. Um, but you know, you're like, you know, ta- you're, you're fighting the good fight every single day to make that numbers change. And um, will, that's what it I takes. I will say there's some good news coming out of the end of the year stats. I, I haven't officially wanted to say this yet because, you know, God forbid it's not true, but it looks like this will end up being a banner year for female founders um, that we are finally seeing some progress now, you know, I think I think we're we're talking about I think this is like a two hundred percent increase year over year on money that's gone to female founders. Now, mind you, well. you know, going from two to three is four is not you know particularly helpful. But um, but but I, look, there's some good signs, right? And we need to keep the pressure on. We need to keep the pace on. You know, LPs need to be continuing to force GPs to answer to the to their you know sort of diversity stats. Um, and we just keep needing to keep doing the good, the good work because, um, we're making some progress. And, and that's, I think our SPAC is a, is a perfect example of that. You know, I mean, we've been asked a lot of, a lot of folks are, are, are questioning the, the, the value of the SPAC market right now. And, and there's a lot of noise around whether or not, um, it's still and, and should be a viable product. And we're incredibly bullish. Um, I think that the market needed to cool off this summer, but I think the concept and the, the ability to use a SPAC, in partnership with the right company is a huge opportunity for um, fintech and, and certainly for really any kind of VC that's got that ability to sponsor something like this. And, and we did it deliberately um, as, with an all-female team because we wanted yeah, to stand out and, and make sure that people understood you know, what we stood for and, and, and who we were, but also by nature of who we are, we're going to do it in partnership. And I think part of the reason why this product, the SPAC is becoming so interesting to proper VCs is that 
it's no longer about doing a transaction, right? It's about finding partnerships and relationships and building that trust over time because you do have time, right? You don't have to, you know, you've got 18 months to two years to do a transaction. You don't have to do it tomorrow. But there's a lot that can be done in that process if you read the right company or the right companies um, to go on that journey together. But it has to be a journey. It can't, this is the most important thing that founders will ever do um, professionally with their company is bring it public. And so if public com- if, if being in the public markets is part of your journey, being able to do it slowly and with a partner that actually um, you know, can provide you with a significant amount of extra value and guidance um, is a huge opportunity. And, and I think um, you know, we're going to see 2022 bringing a lot of those, not a lot, but, but a handful of those opportunities um, to life again. Um, and I think you're going to see it it be a more more common use of 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 capital um, in fintech. Oh, good and about time, right? I mean, it's about um, kind of uh, making things a lot less transactional and much more personal, and um, you know, actually using that moral compass to decide who you partner with, to decide what journey you want to go on together, to understand that like this is. Um, you know, frankly, it's our livelihood and for us to sit around and just be like, oh, it's just business, like, <laughs> but like, and it is, but it's so much more than that. And you have to align on values. And frankly, if you don't, at the end of the day, the product that you roll out, your customers, your end customers are going to be very attuned to the fact that, you know, the values aren't there and aligned and they're going to know. And they're back to those Gen Zers, they're not going to like you for it. Like they're going to call you out on it on like TikTok or something. Like it yeah, won't be good. I'm, I'm super, I, you know, look, I, I started my career in, in marketing. And so to, to me, you know, watching over the last 30 plus years as the industry has pretty much ignored brand reputation and marketing as, as, a, as a cornerstone to building a good business, the, what this generation's demand for, um, you know, quality and authenticity in brands, I think is going to be hugely important. In, in important to the next generation of, of fintech winners. And, you know, it's not rocket science to, you know, appreciate how quickly inauthentic brands um, will suffer at the hands of, of their own, <laughs> their own stories, right? Their own devices. <laughs> if I hear one more company use the term democratizing finance, um, when their entire business model is based on essentially allowing trust fund kids to participate in markets that they otherwise wouldn't have been allowed to, 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 to yeah. participate in, um, you know, it doesn't feel too democratizing to me. Um, but I think where and when a company can build real brand value and authenticity into their story, um, whether it's going public or generally, um, you know, just building their business, I think they're going to have a huge uh, advantage over the com- competition and, and over the other folks that are out there. And I think it's going to become mm-hmm. important, um, more important than it's ever been before in financial services. And also, like you know, it's not like the incumbents have done a phenomenal job of managing um, reputation and, and brand and, and marketing as a as a as a service, right? So there's a lot of room there um, for for our industry to 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 take to some- show how it's done. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how many more like SEC fines do we have to see come out of like an incumbent not marketing their product properly or marketing a fee properly or being like, this thing's free. Enjoy this fintech product. It is free. And it's not free because there's like hidden fees. Like, okay, guys, let's like try to figure this out because this is insane. Um, my, yeah, no, I, I love that. It's an amazing impression of the, um, the drug, uh, drug disclaimers on the ads. Um, wherever, <laughs> or, you know, the television's on or we're doing something, she'll be like... 
not to be used with that and she just goes on yeah. <laughs> we need you for for sort of you know the uh the, the disclaimer of a lot of these uh, they need products to- and services Seriously, then maybe we can uh, stop seeing all those fines. Maybe. I don't know. But yes, I mean, that's okay. We got to recruit your daughter for that one because that's actually really funny. Um, but no, totally agree. Storytelling is really going to be the thing to uh, make a big difference for, for the fintech companies that um, really have an edge uh, moving forward. And it's interesting to see how many are kind of um, revamping their own marketing strategies to be more social media focused and all that good stuff. So it'll be cool to see moving forward. Um, let's see. I know we don't have too much time left with you, but I do want to ask, and we've talked about so many amazing things. Um, I love a good interview where I like throw my, my questions to the side and we just talk. That's exactly what has happened today. But the one thing I definitely want to get, um, some of your thoughts on, um, you know, is uh, imposter syndrome. I, I find a lot of my audience members have a, <laughs> have asked me um, about that, and we talk about that a lot. And so, you know, obviously being a female in male-dominated fields and you in multiple <laughs> versions of that comes with its own unique set of challenges. So what are maybe some of your tips for getting past things like imposter syndrome and really just keeping your mental health in check? Yeah, it's a great question. There was an article at the, on the back page of the Financial Times yesterday, I think, and they were just talking about, there was a wonderful chart about the difference between men and women and the way they um, perceive imposter syndrome, right? That, that time and time again, you can see studies that show that men are more likely to pretend they can do something that they can't do where a woman wants to get it right before she takes credit for it, et cetera. But the most exciting thing for a woman of my age that it turned out to show was that over time, um, as age, that starts to completely, the gap closes completely. And I think what that's telling us is women in particular, um, you know, and and perhaps this will change and it won't be the same for my daughters, but um, with age, uh, start to care a lot less about imposter syndrome. <laughs> and I and I can certainly attest to that, you know, um, you know, having really become a senior executive in my 20s and then a, a CEO in my early 30s, I had a lot of imposter syndrome because I couldn't figure out how the heck I was doing what I was doing, right? And, you know, every day I was sort of questioning, <laughs> what am I doing? You know, I'd like, if I just say something confidently, maybe they'll make sure they'll, they'll continue to believe that I know what I'm doing here. And, and um, I think that got me through a lot more than than it than I probably um, uh, realized in hindsight. But once I hit my forties, and and now as I'm kind of, you know, on the edge of my fifties, um, I don't spend a lot of time, and I don't encourage anybody to spend a lot of time about worrying about what people think about you, um, because there will always be somebody that thinks something about you, and that um, you know can 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 take your glory um, if you let them. And and I I I encourage anybody that 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 ever, you know, ask the question about, um, you know, whether I belong here or whether I have a right to be here. Uh, the answer is always yes. You know, you do you do what you've got to do. Um, you know, do it respectfully, do it kindly, um, do it thoughtfully, um, do it authentically, but do you, uh, don't worry about what people are thinking about you. Just get it done. And, and bring your weird. Bring your weird. Exactly. <laughs> bring your weird. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Amy, for joining us. I will ask you one more question to just share your final thoughts. Amy, will you please tell us what the F we can expect from you and Anthemus next? Ah, Whew. Um, I think <laughs> we can expect um, a little bit more of the same, right? We're going to keep 
putting it out there in a slightly different way than the rest of the world. Um, we're going to keep investing in some amazing founders. Uh, we're going to keep spreading our love incredibly diversely. Uh, and we're going to build some really kick-ass companies together. Hell yeah. Love it. Thank you so much, Amy. Again, that is a wrap on this episode of What the Fintech. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so honored that you are here and, and a part of this community. So thank you, Amy. Thank you, Nicole. Of course. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you loved this episode, be sure to hit that subscribe button and you can find me on all your favorite podcast platforms. Until next time, talk to you soon.